This is a National Arts Center podcast. Find more great NAC podcasts on the performing arts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Center on iTunes and subscribe for free. Welcome to a supplemental edition of the NACOcast. In this episode, guest host Frank Dance, interim artistic administrator for the NEC Orchestra, interviews John Kamira Parker. Enjoy the program. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Bonsoir, mesdames, messieurs. Welcome. I'm Frank Dans, and um, our special guest this evening is John Camero Parker, a.k.a. Jackie. So, Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Uh, Welcome. Okay. I notice on the uh, NAC website that this evening's concert is... Sorry is uh, listed as being one of the Winterlude activities. So I was w- wondering, have you been out skating? I, I, yeah, I have not been out skating. I actually, uh, I am indeed Canadian and I'm from Vancouver. I've been living in the U.S. for some time and I've been living for about uh, 10 years in Houston, Texas, and we don't ice skate there. <laughs> actually, but believe it or not, I think the first time I ever went to Houston many, many years ago, I actually saw for the, the first time the first mall that had a had a skating rink in it was in Houston, Texas. Oh, that could be. Yeah, there is a, there is a there is a anyway. wonderful indoor skating rink. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but I'm absolutely amazed because it's a very famous thing about Ottawa that people actually can skate to and from work if they choose to do so, and I see it all the time at certain times of day. Everybody's carrying skates, and I'm jealous. I think it's great. Yes, it is. It's really fantastic. Jackie, you have a long history with Ottawa, with the National Arts Centre and the National Arts Centre Orchestra, Um, and you've played many, many things over the years. You've played here with the orchestra, but you've also played on tour. Um, Maybe we should just do a a little recap of your career here. (laughs) Yeah, well, actually, I I remember fondly uh, the very first time that I played at the Arts Centre, which was a recital in the studio here as winner of the, I believe it was the third Eckhart Gramate competition. The competition was in 77 or 78, and I think the recital I played here was either in 78 or 79, but it was genuinely a long time ago. And I remember staying uh, at the Lord Elgin Hotel and walking over to the Art Center and seeing a little sign with, you know, the stick-up letters, like the same ones that the diner uses to advertise today's hamburger special, you know. And and the stick-up letters said John Kimura Parker, and I was so incredibly excited to see that. And uh, that was my very first time playing here, uh, I've, over the years, had an incredible relationship with the National Arts Center Orchestra that has spanned many music directors and, uh, and, and, and a lot of personnel in the orchestra, and it's just been an incredible joy for me. I mean, this is a very special orchestra that is, uh, first and foremost, in a way, has 
always, in, in the way I identify the orchestra, has been largely a chamber orchestra, which, which has a lot of great positives, that they're uh, extremely flexible, they can adapt to any different kinds of repertoire, um, they're... Uh, I think a lot of fun to conduct because when you uh, when you have a smaller ensemble, it's it's a little bit like having a sports car, and you and you can uh, there, there's a very quick reaction time. And when you have a huge number of people on stage, the reaction time is a little bit slower. Um, there's also uh, the possibility, of course, of adding extra players and making it a much bigger orchestra, which I know is something that uh, Pincus has done a lot over the years. Because for many years, I came here and 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 would play Mozart piano concertos, early Beethoven piano concertos, the Schumann concerto, uh, works that were really meant to be played with a chamber-sized orchestra. And uh, as soon as Pincus Zuckerman came here, I, I was invited to play the Tchaikovsky piano concerto and Rachmaninoff concertos, and it was a totally different thing. And 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 the orchestra was was being flexible in the way that it can be. Uh, but uh, it, it's amazing to have this long relationship with one group of people and to see, you know, eventually I've seen players from the orchestra retire and, and, and new players come in. Uh, I've done several tours with the orchestra. The, uh, the first one was in 1988. It was in January of 19... January or February of 1988, it was a cross-Canada tour. We started, well, I should say it was a cross-Western Canada tour because we started in Ottawa. Uh, the Art Centre had arranged for a plane that was exactly big enough to house the orchestra and, and, and the conductor at that time, Gabriel Chmura, and myself, and a, cu- a couple of support personnel, and we exactly fit on the plane. And, and we just gradually flew about 45 minutes west until we hit Victoria, where we played our last concert. And it was, a, it was the most amazingly well-designed tour. I don't think we ever backtracked once. We just kept going in the same direction. And, uh, and on that tour, I remember we played the Schumann Piano Concerto and the Mozart D minor Concerto. Um, the most recent tour that I did was with Pinko Zuckerman and James Judd, and it was uh, this was also a, this was a uh, very Western Canada tour, uh, and it was about four years ago. And I played Beethoven Fourth Concerto and something else. I think a Mozart Concerto on that tour. W- one of the things I remember about that tour, uh, orchestra touring is, uh, as you can imagine, if you think about the logistics of orchestra touring, it's insanely complicated. And we will finish a concert uh, at you know, 10, 15 p.m. And, and maybe go out for a bite to eat or head back to the hotel. In the meantime, the stage crew is packing up an incredible amount of stuff and putting it in a truck and driving. And they're driving overnight to get to the next city while you know, we're actually sleeping in a hotel and then getting up and flying to the next city. And there's all that going on in the background, which which I think you, you don't really maybe think about all, all that extra stuff. But that particular tour became a very complicated one for me because... I was alternating these two different piano concertos on the tour. I was playing almost every night, and and it was a very heavy outreach tour. There was lots of extra activities, master classes, uh, different kinds of appearances with students, outreach. There was a lot going on. I mean, it was truly the National Arts Center Orchestra representing the nation and doing something great for the country and really going to small communities and doing all this extra stuff. And it was certainly not just concerts. And uh, But I had this very pressured situation that after the last concert of this tour, uh, 
I was flying back home to Houston, where I was actually appearing with the Houston Symphony in the Shostakovich Piano Concerto Number no. 1, which I had never played before. And it's a really difficult piece. It's not very long, but it's a very difficult piece with just crazy figurations for the piano, very difficult stuff, um, heavily features a trumpet. Uh, it's a, it's a unusual and very exciting and, and uh, quirky and wonderful piece. And... Normally, if I'm about to play something, especially being a little older, if I'm about to play something for the first time, I like to have peace and quiet beforehand, you know, maybe for a week or, you know, just really just settle and work and just totally focus. And instead, I was traveling across Canada playing in a different city every day and alternating piano concertos. And um, there really wasn't... I worked out that there was only one possible time that I could practice this Shostakovich and feel confident when I got to Houston. And that was after concerts. And so the orchestra carried around an electronic keyboard and they set it up in my hotel room. They had to move it every day. And... We would go out, we'd be in, in, in Saskatoon or we'd be in, in, in Victoria or Vancouver, wherever we were, and we would play. I would play my Beethoven concerto or Mozart concerto or whatever it was and uh, maybe get a quick bite to eat, go back to the hotel room, take a shower, get changed, and start practicing Shostakovich. And I would do this for hours every night and then get up early, sleep on the plane, and then, you know, repeat, you know, and, and that, was, that was how I survived the tour. But it really worked. I have to say I was grateful. I couldn't have done it without this electronic keyboard, and I got to Houston, and I felt okay about that rehearsal. Great story. Um, getting back to touring generally, uh, and of course you have that as a, as a piano soloist, you know, soloing with different orchestras every week, that type of thing. Dealing with pianos, you don't bring your own instrument. Right. So how, especially on a tour like the one that you, you talked about, um, going out to the West Coast uh, of Canada, where you're playing in small towns, mm -hmm. in larger cities, whatever, you have mm -hmm. a different situation practically every day. Yeah. There must be some really interesting stories there, too. Well, the, uh, the piano, pianos vary incredibly greatly. They're... I'd say they're more consistent than string instruments probably are. I mean, if, if some of you may have been following the news about the Stradivarius abduction that took place in, in Milwaukee, and if you happen to have followed today's news, it has been recovered. Uh, the instrument's been recovered. It was found in a suitcase in an attic. Um, uh, and apparently... Intact. Intact. Apparently intact and, and in good condition, even though it was taken out of its case. I mean, the case had been discarded at the time of the robbery. But uh, instruments are, uh, string instruments at that level are as unique as fingerprints. Pianos, not so much. I mean, they are factory made, and but still, a Steinway, for example, has a lot of wood, and, and wood varies in, in its qualities and, and, and everything else. And the sound that you make on a piano is created by hammers, which are made out of felt, which hit the string. And there are all these variables that, and in particular, a piano will have a certain character that it will retain for um, the life of the instrument. Hammers change a lot. They start out very um, soft, and they make a what I consider a, a, a pleasant but not very interesting sound when you you know if you play a brand new Steinway you get this kind of slightly muffled sound and it sounds pleasant but it just doesn't have any life to it and you have to really hit that hammer to the string 
tens of thousands of times. And eventually, where it hits the string, uh, the, the hammer actually develops an indentation in the felt, and it hardens. And you can actually see a little groove where it's constantly hit the string in the same place. And when you get to that point, you start to get to this sweet spot where the hammer's just right, and the sound coming out of the piano is just right, and there's room to create what we call color. It's a strange word to use for music because color is a visual word, but we use the word color to refer to different qualities of sound. If you hear a violin play an, uh, an A and you hear a piano play the same A and you hear a clarinet play the same A, each of those sounds has a different color. It's, what we, it's the word that we use. And, and on the piano, you want to have a lot of variety of color. And, uh, and once you get to that point, then you start having this, this fantastic variety. Then eventually the, the hammers start wearing out and they get too hard and then you get an unpleasantly bright sound. So there's, there's this kind of sweet spot that pianos often aren't in. Uh, and, um, and then there are all sorts of other problems, like, a, like a, a piano technicians are often forced to take a shortcut with a brand new hammer that there isn't going to be, there, there won't be 10,000 indentations of, of hitting the, the, the string. Uh, and what they do is they put a, a, a very, very thin layer of a hardening liquid on the hammer, which, which hardens the hammer. But usually not in a very subtle way, not in a very nuanced way. And you end up getting a sound that's too bright and then you have to go backwards. And it, it, <coughs> it gets terribly complicated. And, but all pianos are different. And so what happens on tour is... I, I ideally like to try the piano before the concert. Uh, I almost, almost always have a chance to do that. And I have, to, I have to assess very quickly, is the piano light in action? Is it heavy in action? Is it uh, essentially brilliant? Is it essentially dull? Is one area of the piano dull, which is a very common problem with Steinways? Is the treble register going to be bright enough to be heard over an orchestra that's playing fortissimo. I mean, I've sometimes had to go to a conductor at, the, at his dressing room you know, right before the concert and say, Maestro, forgive me, but tonight's piano really just doesn't have a lot of oomph. So if you could keep the orchestra down, it would really help for balance. Uh, other times, I know it's going to be fine. So uh, there was one time that I tried a piano, or that I performed on a piano without trying the piano. Uh, and it was, it, it was in Guelph. Um, I was playing with the Kitchener-Waterloo uh, Symphony Orchestra. It was many, many, many years ago, so this story does not in any way reflect on current uh, management. Um, um, I mean, this was at least 30 years ago. But I, I, I played with the Kitchener-Waterloo Symphony. We did a run-out concert to Guelph, and due to my uh, miscalculation and error, I arrived in Guelph only about an hour before the concert. Now, we had done all, all of our rehearsals in Kitchener. But um, I arrived in Guelph about an hour before the concert, and I, went, I was about to go and try the piano, and I saw that um, uh, there were already people there because we were performing, at, at that time, we were performing in, I think, a high school gym, and there were no reserved seats, and people had showed up really early to get keyboard view, right? So uh, there were already people there, and I felt kind of funny about trying the piano in front of, in front of people. So, so I thought, well, you know, how bad can it be? It's Prokofiev Third Piano Concerto. It's essentially a loud piece, and, and I'm sure everything will be fine, and you know, I'll just go back to my dressing room, which was the boys' locker room. So I was waiting around in the dressing room, and then it was time to come out and play the concerto. Rafi Armenian was conducting, and, and I walked out, uh, he had conducted the overture with the piano in place. I mean, the piano had, had been in place the whole time. It was a very short overture. And then I came out to play the concerto, and I sat down, 
at, at which point I realized that the pedals had not been attached to the piano <laughs> during the piano move. And so the piano was there, the legs that were, were there, uh, but the, the pedal assembly was sitting on the stage. It wasn't actually attached. And, you know, um, and, and I looked down and I put my foot on the pedal and it went kind of like this, you know, it was like, you know, there's nothing there. And, and um, Rafi was, was ready to give the upbeat to the clarinetists to start the piece. And I said, wait. <laughs> and, and I turned to the audience. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, we're having a small technical difficulty. And, uh, and they looked a bit confused. So I reached down and I pulled up the whole pedal assembly and I held it up and I said, this is the difficulty. Uh, and... Uh, at that point, Rafi and I got down on our hands and knees in front of the audience, in tails, and started trying to figure out how to reassemble it. And the thing that was kind of strange, and this is why I say this doesn't reflect on current management, was nobody ran out on stage to help us. <laughs> and, and so we were out there trying to figure it out. And, and I finally went backstage and found a paperback book stuffed in somebody's violin case and brought it back and jammed it underneath and got the thing to work. This is what I had to do at home when my, my pedals broke. And, uh, and we got a standing ovation before playing a note. <laughs> How was the performance? I, I, it, <laughs> you don't remember. I don't remember a thing about it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, and as a, a, a quick aside about that, about trying new pianos and whatever. Um, in a previous life in Atlanta, mm. I had conned you when I was there into to playing on a new piano, a new Hamburg Steinway. Oh, yeah. And um, I thought by the end of the week that you would kill me, but unfortunately, you, you, well, fortunately, you couldn't because you were so tired because you had worked so hard physically yes. to break that yeah. piano I, in. I was really, you... I was really had to, I really had to break it in. It was, it, it's hard work. This is what happens once a piano is at that sweet spot or slightly beyond where the piano is a little bit too bright. If you have experience and control and the desire to do so, you can temper that sound and you end up having a lot of room for a variety of sound. But if a piano is basically dull, there's, you can pound it to make it a little louder, but you can't really change the character of the sound, the color of the sound that much. And, and so that's the problem with a brand new piano. And I have been given the honor of inaugurating new pianos several times. <laughs> and it always seems to be one, one of the big, big piano concertos. Right. And yeah. you can't, you have to take them out on test drive. And of course, exactly. you, you yeah. don't have the chance to. Yeah. Let's get down to the repertoire. Um, you've, as you as you've said, you've started off doing a lot of the classical repertoire with this orchestra mm -hmm. and then graduated to the more romantic stuff. And then you're back <clears throat> to the classical repertoire in, in the Mendelssohn concerto. Right. Which yeah. is is that is that a piece which is in your standard repertoire? How did the, how did it come about that you got to play this thing here? I you know I don't actually remember if I asked for it or if the orchestra asked for it. I I played it with one or other orchestra in last fall. It's a piece I did play about fifteen years ago uh, for a while, and then I haven't played it in a long time. And uh, piano concertos essentially come in three lengths: twenty minutes, thirty minutes, and. 45. And uh, that really matters when you're programming. I mean, you would know this better than anyone. Right. And um, uh, there aren't that many that are in the 20-minute category. I mean, there's uh, Mendelssohn concertos, the Liszt concertos, the Ravel G major concerto, um, I guess the Shostakovich, which is kind of a special case. But there, you know, there aren't that many. Um, in the case of this program, and this is why I'm thinking it's possible the orchestra asked 
for it. I mean, we would have decided this over a year ago, and I just don't remember now, but uh, is because the program is starting with a 20-minute work, and so there's a little less time. I mean, there certainly wouldn't be time for me to play a Brahms concerto or most of the Beethoven concertos after um, uh, the Schaefer piece, which starts the program. And so I think for that reason, the 20-minute concerto option was a good one. And some of them, like the Ravel, uh, require a lot of extra instrumentation, notably harp. Um, and uh, the Liszt concertos, I just don't play those anymore. I gave, I just didn't, I didn't enjoy playing them that much, and I stopped playing them a long time ago. So I don't have that many short concertos in my repertoire. So that may be how it came about, that it was a request, and I said, sure, I haven't played that in ages. That would be kind of fun. Um, the Mendelssohn is... <clears throat> It is uh, uh, there is a period of music history where the uh, one of the most interesting in a way where there is this you can kind of see and hear the transition from the proportion of the classical era to the more personal uh, expression of the romantic era and and you can also see and hear how different composers got from the classical era to the romantic era or didn't um, Brahms for example was very much uh, in in some of his harmonic language certainly living in a, in a romantic era but he was very um, attuned to classical forms and respected classical forms. Mendelssohn, similarly, there were some more avant-garde things happening around Mendelssohn, like, for example, Franz Liszt, who was a great experimenter and whose piano music is filled with, with effects that nobody had thought of before, uh, whose orchestral music, uh, you know, he didn't like the idea particularly of writing in sonata forms and symphony, symphonic forms. He, he had this more idea of free fantasies that became much more common. Uh, but Mendelssohn really wasn't in that space. He was a, there's, there's a certain romantic aspect to the virtuosity of his writing, but he really was very much into the kind of classical thing. Now, you have to remember with Mendelssohn, there's, you know, we can talk about, we, we talk about late Beethoven, right? Like a composer who has evolved to a completely different person from who he was decades earlier. And that's certainly true of Beethoven. It's true of many composers. We even talk about late Mozart, which is a little bit of an absurdity when you think of how uh, short his life was. But there is a late Mozart. Compared to the, the things he wrote when he was very young, you can hear the progression of Mozart's writing, the, the, the added degree of complexity, of harmonic ideas, uh, of, of experimenting with form. Uh, in the case of Beethoven, uh, where he got fascinated with fugues and polyphonic writing in his later works in, in the string quartets and late sonatas. So you really I, I, were very aware of composer's development. It's totally different with Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn, in a certain way, peaked at the age of 16 when he wrote the octet for strings, which it's basically two string quartets combined, one of the masterpieces of all of the chamber music literature. It is a breathtakingly great piece. And, and it's... I would venture to say even more than Mozart that that puts Mendelssohn in the category of greatest child prodigy composer of all time, that he wrote the, the octet at the age of 16 is, is miraculous. What's interesting, I mean, he lived to only be a little more than twice that long. He lived till he was, I think, 37 or 38, um, is he didn't really change that much. I mean, he, he found his voice as a, a teenager and kept it. 
and and not a whole lot changed. It, you, you know, we don't really talk about late Mendelssohn. I mean, I think maybe it, he was in his early 20s when he wrote this piano concerto that I'm playing tonight. And uh, stylistically, it's it's similar in many ways to the octet. And works that he wrote much later are stylistically relatively similar. Um, the concerto is. Uh, first of all, you'll, you'll, you'll have a big, uh, you'll be a, s a step of ahead of everybody else by knowing that there is not really a, s a substantial break between movements. Uh, the in particular, the first movement, there's an orchestral interlude that just kind of takes you into the second movement, but we, there isn't that obvious, obvious break. And there is a very short break at the end of the slow movement before the third movement, but it's very, it's very brief. And so it, it feels like one large movement. It feels like one 20-minute movement, but it, it very clearly has these three sections. And, and in that sense, they're, they're, they're traditional in form, except that Mendelssohn chose the shortest possible expression of those forms, of sonata form or a variation form. He chose the, the, the shortest possible way that he could present it in this piece, whereas a composer like Beethoven always chose the longest possible way. I mean, what, one of the things that, is, that made the Eroica Symphony uh, such a revolutionary piece is that the first movement alone was longer than any complete symphony written by any person before, including Beethoven himself. I mean, the first movement was just, it was longer than any previous entire symphony. So Beethoven was total opposite. He just length, drawn out, you know, all that Mendelssohn, um, brevity, uh, extreme clarity of of idea. The brilliance of the piece comes through in a very obvious way. Um, the uh, Mendelssohn's great gift of melody, which of course for piano lovers is is most well known in his songs without words, that that incredible gift of, of melodic writing, which seems so effortless, but it can't have always been effortless, I think, but uh, is is evident in the little interlude in the first movement and all through the second movement, which is very beautifully written. And and like all great second movements, you shouldn't listen only to the piano because uh, for at least half of it, the orchestra has the theme, and I'm just doing what I what I call noodling, you know, I'm I'm just sort of flowing around the theme. But I mean, everybody, everybody else actually has it. It was interesting in last night's performance to watch the orchestra actually, and especially um, um, our concertmaster Yosuke, mm -hmm. you, whom you couldn't see obviously right, because he was right. right behind you. But he was bobbing along <laughs> with the tune and having a really great time, which was which was really fascinating to watch. Yeah, too. well, I think we we were we were having a good time for a lot of reasons. I think first of all. We all love working together. Um, Hanu Lintu, who's conducting tonight and who may be familiar to many of you because he's been here before a few times, is uh, a tremendously energetic conductor and uh, brings a lot out of the orchestra in in a very positive, good way. And I mean, he's got an arm span. It looks like he's a, he's 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 going to achieve takeoff. You know, I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's huge, huge hands and arms. And um, but it. it the Mendelssohn is, is, despite not being that long, is somewhat repetitive in this concerto. I mean, he'll take the same phrase and he'll basically repeat it um, sometimes three times. And usually the third time it goes in a different direction, something, something happens. But those, the, those repeated ideas can sound a lot like, well, something's just been repeated. And, and, and what I noticed Hanu doing a lot is finding a slightly different way to do the same thing over and over again, which was great. It was very inspirational to me to try to do the same thing, which I try to do. So, so um, the, the combination of that hopefully makes the piece interesting because it, it is, 
harmonically, if, if you're a musician and you were, you were to do an analysis of the piece and you were familiar with tonic, dominant, and subdominant and sort of the, the basics of, of your, you know, Harmony 4 sort of class, the harmonies are not that complicated in this piece. But the way he strings them together and the way he, uh, the different kinds of ways that he writes brilliant stuff in the piano um, and also features just the right instrument in the orchestra at the right time. There's just a brief moment where, um, where you'll hear a beautiful clarinet uh, expression of the melody and, and, and I'm just accompanying in the background. Uh, just wonderful stuff. And tons of notes. Oh my God. So many notes. It, 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 it's... In a 20-minute piece. In a 20-minute piece, yeah. I, I, on the weekend, played the Brahms' first piano concerto in Victoria. And that concerto is easily more than twice as long. I mean, I think... It's 45 minutes. It's about 45 minutes, yeah. Uh, and it probably has about half the number of notes. I mean, it's just a totally <laughs> different kind of thing, you know. It, it's... From the standpoint of the breadth of the piece and the arc of the piece, the, the Brahms is much harder to play. Uh, but from a standpoint of of sort of just finger velocity and consistency, the, the Mendelssohn is harder to play. Well, that last movement especially is just yeah. unbelievable. It's yeah, just... yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I did a little uh, interview about about the the last movement and I compared it to the Keystone Cops. You know, it's just just like like this this manic crazy thing happening. You can, can hardly believe it. After intermission, of course, the orchestra will play the Schumann Fourth Symphony, which I think you got a chance to hear and, mm -hmm. and to watch with uh, with Hanu, and, and I think uh, our audience is really in for a treat. Oh, it's uh, fantastic! It... It's it's a great piece and it's a great performance, uh, and and it's also a piece of music you can put in context because it was written in about the same decade as the Mendelssohn. So, um, yeah, right. wonderful. Exactly, yeah. and of course, we open the concert with this wonderful piece by uh, Murray Schaefer called Dream Escape, I think is the, is the correct title. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just, um, for once, agreeing with the review in the paper um, that, uh, <laughs> that it's actually a very good piece mm -hmm. and wonderfully constructed mm -hmm. and wonderful orchestration. Actually, it almost reminded me of a concerto for orchestra, mm -hmm. really. It's that, it's that interesting. And yep. he gives mm -hmm. each of the sections a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful work. Anyway, you have to go back and sort of I'm going to warm up warm up and change yeah. into something else and, and all of that and uh, you don't and like we, this? And, and, <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, actually you can do what you want yeah. actually um, anyway and we'd like to thank you so very much for, for coming and, and, and um, helping us out this, this evening and um, also ladies and gentlemen if you want to stay after the concert we will have uh, a meet the artist with Hanu Lintu our conductor uh, immediately following on stage so you can get the the reverse of that coin, so to speak. Anyway, thank you so very much. Thank you. And uh, thank you. have a good concert.
This has been a National Arts Center podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. Send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NAC podcasts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.